All right. Lord, as we open your word and go into 1 John, I ask as always that your Holy Spirit guide us. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to guide us. We thank you that we have copies of your word. I pray that we would take advantage of this privilege, Lord, that you would give us hunger and thirst to want to read and know you through your word. And we trust that you will open it up to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So a quick summary. I know for me it always helps to get my mind back into what have we read so far in 1 John. We've already gone through four chapters and a little bit. uh, No, three chapters and a little bit. We just got up to verse 7 or through verse 6 of chapter 4. And I tried to pick out the main points to summarize. First thing, first night was it's critical to have our foundation of fellowship with God and with others. That was the first thing that he told us. Then we went into the first point of God is light and walking with him means what? You can read what I'm reading and you'll get the answer. Means we obey his commands. And it was very, very straightforward, very black and white. If you're not obeying his commands, you don't know him. You're not walking with him. You can't be on one side and say you're walking with me and then be walking in the dark. You can't have fellowship with me because I'm not in the dark is what God's saying. So he was very clear on that. And then point number three, those who do not live according to God's ways have not come to know him, which is kind of what I just said. The primary way we demonstrate God lives in us is how? And John says this over and over again, one way and another way. And what he's doing is repeating Jesus' last command. He said, this is how they will know you belong to me. By how you love one another. Very, very important point that he goes over and over. And then the last one, we talk about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us recognize the truth and always agrees with God's Word. That's important because he says, there's other spirits out there that will say other things. So we have to test the spirits and make sure we recognize what is from God and what is not. And he gave us some easy tests based on if it's saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh, that is an important test. And it always is going to agree with God's word, which thankfully we have now. Okay, so that was just a little review. And I wanted to point out one verse we already went over, but this one has been helping me this week. And it's one that I encourage you guys to memorize. 1 John 4, 4, you, dear children. This is after he's talking about spirits that deceive, spirits that don't say the truth. He says, but you are from God and have, have overcome them. Talking about those spirits and anything else that sets itself up against Christ. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
you probably do have that one in your mind. But that's the verse that it comes from. So now we're going to move on to verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because, say it with me, God is love. He's going to say that again in a little bit. This is the very same argument from the first chapter when it talked about God is light. If we walk in the light, we show that we know God. Not walking in the light shows we do not know God. And this is now the same for love. Loving one another shows we have God's seed in us. Remember when he started using that wording for it, the seed that resides in us? And not loving shows we really don't know him. We haven't seen him. We haven't come to know him. We haven't been born of him or his other language he's used. And this is the third time John refers to those who do not love. Specifically, whenever he says one another or brother and sister. That's what he says when he uses love. That's who he's referring to. And so the, the, the three times that he says, if you're not loving, then you're not God's child. They remain in death. And now in this verse, they do not know God. So God is love. And that means God defines love, which in our culture is very important to recognize. And that's going to be one of your questions at the end tonight is, how we define what love is. God defines what love is. God is love. He embodies it, demonstrates it, and listen to this. He's never not loving. Even the things he does that we don't understand or might not feel loving to us in the moment, his character is love. So he cannot act outside of that character. Isn't that comforting to know? Everything he does is consistent with his character, which is love. That's why you can trust him. That's why when he says to do something, it's always for our good. If we can really believe that, think of how free we would be to trust him. Sometimes we're a little bit scared. But if we really believed that everything he tells us is for our good, out of love, we get that down in us, I think we'd be more free in how we walk with him. And just to make sure we uh, define this love, this is the agape, which is selfless love. It's always thinking about the good of the other person. And that's the kind of of love God is. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And I showed you which Greek word is live because so many times we've seen live is the meno, which is also translated abides. This one's not. This is actually living, like be alive. And so I put there, it's to live, be alive, not the meno one, to abide or remain. So God sent his son into the world. He demonstrated this unselfish love, giving up his son 
so that we can live, really live. Romans 5.8 says that almost exactly. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very good. And John 10.10 is another one. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Real life is found in Jesus. We live through him. So that made me think about we're not expected to live the Christian life in our own strength. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. We can't. So don't even try. But we get to live through him. This is love. He's defining it again. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I know that what we're reading today is not new news to us, but sometimes we need to let it sink in. And for me in this part especially, love is not that I love God. Love is that he loved us. And he demonstrated what kind of love that is by sacrificing, by giving up his own son so that we could come back into relationship with him. He's the one who defined love. He initiated that relationship and he provided the way back to him. Hello, ladies. We're so glad you're here. The notes are right back there in the corner. We're just moving on to the second page so you can find us. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Are you seeing what's happening here? So maybe we can't see God, but when we live the love that he is, we show what he's like, which is what Jesus did. And now we, as his body, are to do the same thing that Jesus did. We do it corporately. We can do it as individuals, but I really believe when I read this verse, his love is made complete in us. It's not just in me, and each person takes it individually, although, yes, you can, but in us as a body, as the church. That's when his love is made complete. I don't have all the gifts. I don't have all the things that God wants to do, but together, his love is made complete in us. That's why I put corporally, and it made me think of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, which is another verse that blew me away a few years ago. God placed all things under his feet, his being Jesus' feet here, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you know we are his fullness? You know the famous you complete me line in some movie that I didn't even watch. We actually complete him. I'm not saying he's incomplete without us. But is it amazing to think that we are his fullness? 
We make his love complete. We show his love to the world. That's amazing. He gave us that privilege to be in that place. And as a body, that's, what, that's who we are. That's what we're called to do. This is what John is saying. This is not new, but listen. God is love. And you get to be the ones who show the world what God is like. And his love is made complete through you, through his body, through us. That's why I think unity is such a big thing for him and close to his heart that Jesus prayed for because we got to be together to do that well. Are we ready to move on? I know, it makes me want to stay, but we, we talk about it more in our groups. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. He said this before. We learned at the beginning he's going to go around and come back and say things very similarly. If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 24, go back a few pages. He says almost the same thing. How do we know that we live in him and he lives in us? His spirit tells us. Which made me ask the question, do you know? That you've been given of his spirit? There was a time in my life when I had been a Christian for a long time. I'd already been in the ministry, been teaching the word. And some things happened and questions came up. And I wondered, God, do, do I actually have your Holy Spirit? So I don't want anybody here to wonder. And I, and I know that it's common because I talk to women and men. And they're like, well, I'm not sure. I think I probably have the Holy Spirit. So let me give you a couple of verses. First of all, Acts 2.38. This is Peter's first sermon. Right after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. He first tells them they killed the Son of God. And they're like, oh, what do we do? And this is his answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Does it say you had to do something right? You had to act good enough or do something to be good enough to get it? He says, you come to Jesus, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Luke, thir Luke eleven thirteen. this is Jesus speaking. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you're not certain and you've wondered once and for all, you can satisfy that question. Ask him. I want your Holy Spirit. And then we receive it based on God's promise, not on our feelings. There's actually another verse that I put in your questions at the end in the small groups. But it was one that helped me the day that I told you that I was like, do I actually have your Holy Spirit, Lord? Because some people are telling me I don't do things that show that I have the Holy Spirit. And he reminded me of a verse I had memorized from 1 Corinthians 6.19. Anybody know what that says? 
It's the one that says you are a temple. Very good, Nancy, from God. And it was in the form of a question. He said, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you received from God? And I was like, oh, that's right. Thank you. But I needed him to remind me of that. Because sometimes we don't feel like we have it, or we don't do things that other people think we should do to show that we have it. But I want you to know, you don't have to worry about that. We trust in the truth of his promise that we have the Holy Spirit. And then we walk in faith, expecting that we have the Holy Spirit, trusting in the Holy Spirit. And his word is what makes the Holy Spirit come alive the most, in my opinion, in my experience. Because you're using the Word, which is the same thing as the Holy Spirit. Remember? The Trinity. And so they are in agreement, and they are going to agree with each other, and, and, and you're going to sense that when, you have, when you're in the Word. All right. I hope that helps. So... This is how we know we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. We've seen. We testify. This is John and the apostles. We do the same. We've seen. We testify. The father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges, this word also can be translated, confesses publicly that Jesus is the Son of God. God lives in them and they in God. You want another proof that God lives in you? Have you confessed publicly that Jesus is the Son of God? Usually that happens at baptism. Most baptisms I've been to, people confess publicly. But you could have done it at another time. If anybody hasn't ever confessed publicly, you can do it right now. Then you won't have to wonder. I have some water with <laughs> okay, so confessing publicly, acknowledging Jesus is the Son of God, means God lives in us and they in God. And so, verse 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Now, this verse is actually in the past tense, and so it could also be translated, we have known and have believed or trusted, can be translated as trusted, in God's love for us. Our confidence is where? In God's love for us. And that is a very solid place to have your confidence placed. I rely on him, not on what I do, not on anything about how good I am. We rely on God's love for us. And here we go for the second time. God is love. That's who he is. That's why we can have confidence. That's why we can trust. That's why we can rely on, believe, know for sure that we are in him. 
Why is John beating this point, letting his readers know that they are in God and how to know that they are in God? Because, first of all, we know people have left the church that were probably telling them they're not in God because they haven't gotten this new whatever revelation that they were preaching. And John is also saying, walk in the light, obey my commands, love one another. And if you're not helping people, showing love, you're not loving. Remember what he was talking about? If you see somebody in need and you're not taking pity on them, then you're not loving. So there's been a lot of things that could make people say, oh, maybe I'm not really a believer. Maybe I'm not really knowing God, been born of God, sure of my salvation. So that's why John is continually going back and forth between saying, this is how you should walk. But this is also how you know you belong to him. Okay? This is where you get your confidence. It's in his love. It's relying on who he is. God is love. Whoever lives, now this one is the minnow word, abides in love, lives in God, and God in them. And this is how love is made complete. And this time, that word complete actually has a double. You know, p complete sometimes is translated perfect. This is actually perfectly perfect. <laughs> this is how love is made that perfectly complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. By having our confidence, by living in God's love. And he says, in this world, we are like Jesus. That's the NIV. Other translations say, literally, as he is, so also are we in this world. And that one is like, hmm, I'm not exactly like Jesus. What, what does that mean? I wrote three things based on different things that I read that I think help us recognize what he means here. Just like Jesus is the son we, too, are sons and daughters. In an earlier class, I put on there Galatians 3, and I think the beginning of 4. can't remember exactly which verses. But that's where it talks about that we uh, have been adopted by our Father. We, too, are sons and daughters, and we are God's ambassadors, just like Jesus. Like, as he is, that's how we are in this world. Also, just like Jesus showed the world what the Father is like, what we were talking about at the beginning... We make God visible by being his body. You've heard probably we're the hands and feet of Jesus, right? That's why we're called the body of Christ. They can't see God. Jesus came to show the world what God is like. He left his body to show the world what God is like. So in the world, we are like him. And third, just like Jesus found his confidence in remaining in God's love while he was in this world. So do we. Remaining in his love over and over in this chapter, and we know that this letter, a lot of it comes from the teaching on the Jesus' last night, which is found in John chapters 13 through 16 and the prayer in 17. And you, you know chapter 15 is all about the vine and the branches and abiding and remaining in his love. 
And that's what John's hitting on right here. That's where we find our confidence, remaining in his love. And that goes right into 18. For there is no fear in love. Think about that statement. Maybe in the kind of love we experience here, there probably have been relationships, even love relationships where there's fear. But in God's love, there's no fear in love. And he explains why. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. Also translated torment here. And when you think of that word, I don't know about you, but immediately comes to mind the final judgment. Thinking something bad is going to happen is that fear of punishment or torment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We have no fear of judgment when we remain in the Father's love. That's the first one. If we're clear that we've been born of God, we have the Spirit, we know when the day of judgment comes, we were just talking about this today with my parents, there are two different judgments. And judgment will not be a bad thing for those who are in Christ. Because judgment is only about rewards. There's no fear of judgment when you're in the Father's love. The judgment for those who are not in Christ will be a very fearful judgment. Because that one is about punishment and things that we have not done or have done wrong. But beyond just the fear of judgment or not having the fear of judgment because we we are in his love, what about just living in the world now before we even get to the end of our lives here on earth? What do we have to fear if we know that we are loved and cared for by him? Do you ever think about that? Because I know that just as humans, emotionally, we feel the emotion of fear. Some things, you know, by surprise, that, you know, catch us by surprise and make us fear. Some things that we, you know, start to think about in our minds and make up scenarios and start start to fear. But if you step back and think, wait a minute, I have a God who is love. Nothing he does is unloving. He's good and he's powerful. He has promised that I belong to him, that I'm his son and daughter, that I have an inheritance with him, that he will protect me. What do I have to fear? And I put a couple of verses that came to mind. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Another one just came to mind about, you know, if you may have tribulations and all these kinds of things in this world, but it doesn't compare 
to the surpassing greatness of what is coming in the future, to the good that's coming in the future. I think I mixed two verses there. And verse 35 in also Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that's what he says. You know, a list of lots of things, but nothing will. There's another one in Romans. Romans is good for this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Romans 5.10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? How much more shall we be saved through his life? And Psalm 56, I love, verse 4. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So there's no fear in love, neither fear of coming judgment, which is what I think most people think of, but also just daily life here on earth. We don't have to fear. So many people that I talk to walk around just worried about, you know, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to have enough? All of those can be put to rest when we really trust this God of love who is a powerful, very able provider. And the only question that I usually get is, what he might let things happen to me that I don't like. And that's where the trust comes in, because he might. But he promises he will give you everything you need in that moment to stand up to whatever it is you have to face. So, no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. And we love because he first loved us. This is so very true in my life. I wanted to love him, but I didn't really know how (laughs) until I began to recognize how much he loved me. And that is what stirred up my love for him. This is almost what he just said in verse 10, which we we read at the beginning of class. We love because he first loved us, In verse 10, he said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He initiated, he was first, his is the defining love. He's the one that showed us what selfless love really looks like. And when we comprehend that, we can't help but love him back. It took me a while to comprehend it. And I would say, yeah, I know God loves me, but I still feared. I still really needed approval from people. And that's one of the things that will fall away when you really start to comprehend how much God loves you. When he loves first, then he shows us how to really love back. And for me, a lot of it is understanding the care how much he cares for us and how much we can trust him. Anybody else experience that? Amen. So, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Now he's going back to the same argument he used about with light. 
and it's and it's the inconsistency. Remember the two columns? I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. You can't be on both sides of the two columns. I won't write them all up here again, but we had the the cosmic battle, good and evil, God and devil, light and darkness, love and hate. And you can't be on both sides. That's what God shows. There's, there's no crossover. You get, you get one crossover. Jesus says, I bring you from death and cross you over to life. But you can't live in light and walk in darkness. And now he's saying, you can't claim that you love God, but at the same time hate a brother or sister. Can you strongly dislike <laughs> Can you strongly dislike one? Well, you know what? This is not about our emotions. This is about our choices. And that is very helpful to remember. Because, yes, the emotions come. And we have to make a choice. And I think that's one of the things we talked about love when we first defined it. Is love is not how I feel. Love is how I choose to act. I didn't write that in these notes. I think it was in an earlier day, but that'd be something to remember. Uh, yes, thank you. That's exactly right. We love with actions and in truth. And, and don't beat yourself up about the feelings that come. You know? I've said before... You know the thing about a, a bird flying over? You can't, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop him from building a nest. Do you understand what that means? That means thoughts come, feelings come, but you don't dwell on them and let it stay there and stay there and stay there. You make a choice with what comes into your mind, whether they're feelings or thoughts, and then you decide what you're going to do with it. That's what we talked about also from 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I'm pretty sure that's where that comes from. So when it says we take captive all the thoughts that come in and we make them obedient to Christ. So we say, okay, I don't like this or I'm thinking this, but here's the truth. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it line up with the truth and I'm going to choose to act the way God teaches me that love would act. And you know what? Love is not always what we would say nice and easy. Sometimes love is saying the difficult thing. Love doesn't always just mean we make somebody else feel better. True love is what God and Jesus modeled to us, telling people the truth in love and acting in ways that, they, that is good for them, whether they think it's good for them or not, based on how the Word tells us and how the Holy Spirit guides us. Does that make sense? We love because He first loved us. His defining love shows us what love looks like, and then we love him back. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, 
is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. <laughs> Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Reminds me of when Jesus said, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. And sometimes that helps when maybe we don't have the feeling to want to act in love towards someone. I'm doing this for Jesus. You don't have to tell that person, but on the inside, I'm doing this for Jesus. Just look at Jesus on their face when you're doing it, if, if that helps. And then he's about to bring this all to a summary, so I'm going to move on through to the beginning of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He said something very similar in, in chapter 4, verse 15, which was not very long ago. Turn one page back. Anyone who acknowledges or confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So you believe Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God, God lives in you. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Does the child mean Jesus or all the rest of us who are God's children? Yes. Both. It's easy to love Jesus. It's a little bit harder to love all the rest of God's children who aren't as perfect as Jesus. Would you agree? Yeah. Sometimes it's even hard to, to love ourselves because I get mad at myself too because I don't do everything the way that I wish that I did. Again, it all boils down to believing and demonstrating it through love. When we get to the end, which is next week, it's not very far away, I just want to like boil all these things down. I love, I'm a kind of big picture kind of person. I love to take all these things that he says, and there's sentences that say almost the same thing, but a little bit different, and boil it down to, okay, here is small chunks that I can remember and live by. And this is one of them. He's saying, believe the truth about who Jesus is and demonstrate it by loving. We're going to have a few small chunks like that that we take away from this letter. And it's, John's actually really very simple. There's a few things that I think get complicated and people, we're about to come to one of them in, in a few minutes that, you know, we can talk about. But in general, John doesn't bring really difficult things to understand. He just says, these are the basics. You believe who Jesus is. You stick to the original gospel. You don't let some new teaching draw you away to something different. You walk with God, obeying his commands, and the main command, which covers pretty much all of them, is love one another, which is how Jesus summed up the law and the prophets. Love God, believe who he is, and love other people the way he asks us to love other people. That's what it boils down to. Not that complicated, right? 
Paul said almost the same thing in Galatians 5, 6, which I think Vanessa brought up in our group last week. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Same basic chunk that it boils down to. Because faith is believing. Faith is the noun for the verb to believe, basically. It's what you believe. And now verse 2 is going to summarize these last things he just finished saying about loving and believing. This is how we know we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands. Jesus said the exact same thing in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And this is my favorite part. His commands are not burdensome. Have they ever felt like they are burdensome to you? Yes. Especially when we're supposed to love people that we don't want to love or we're supposed to do things that we don't want to do. But guess what? This is the truth. The truth says his commands are not burdensome. If they feel like they are, we're off somewhere. That doesn't mean that it's not difficult because our sin nature doesn't want to do what we should do sometimes. Matthew 23, 4. This is commands that are burdensome. They, Jesus talking about the Pharisees, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And he's talking about how they would take God's laws and add their own and make it something very difficult for people to have to live by. But Jesus said something different. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't give you laws that are burdensome, that he won't lift a finger to help you. His is the opposite. He says, take on my yoke. You guys know what a yoke was? I feel like sometimes I don't define everything in this class because I have an idea that you guys already know. But it, it was actually what the animals that were beasts of burden, they would like plow the fields, would put across their necks to plow. That was the yoke. And, and it was a, as a team, so they, most of the time they would be yoked together to two of them, and they would pull together. So Jesus says, take on mine. Mine is, my, take upon my yoke, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Pharisees demanded more than people could carry, but Jesus offers a different yoke. We get to be attached or yoked to his life. 
when he talks about live through him. Did anybody need to hear that one tonight? I needed to hear that one this week. Now remember that he's not calling us to something that feels burdensome. He's calling us to remain in him, to be faithful, to come back to him. And it should be a yoke that is easy and his burden is light. And again, that doesn't mean all your decisions are easy when you choose to follow him. But it's not you pulling and striving and trying to do something on your own. It's you letting the spirit work through you to give you the strength you need, the wisdom you need, the courage you need to follow through and obey the word that we believe. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What we said a few minutes ago, it boils down to what we believe. That's what our faith is. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Our victory lies in our faith. I read a book about spiritual warfare a couple years ago, and he really focused on this verse and the one that I said at the beginning of class. They both used the word overcome. Do you remember the one at the beginning? You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Any evil lying spirit. Because remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. What we have overcome, it was when he was talking about the spirits. The one who lives in you is greater than the one in the world. And then right here, our victory is in our faith. Who overcomes the world? The one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. And John wrote the gospel, to, and he said his reason was that so we would believe Jesus is the Christ, and that we would have life in his name. And um, I'm not going to look these up right now because it's already almost time for us to go to our groups, but four more verses that use that word overcome. John 16, Jesus, one of the very last thing he says, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The other one is right here in 1 John, two of them in Revelation. Um, one to the churches, the one who overcomes. And then Revelation 12 is, how did we overcome them? You remember what they are? By the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we, we did not shrink back from death. Okay. All right. So the key to victory is faith. And not only the initial faith, that believes and receives Jesus, but continuing to believe all the promises of the word. It's an ongoing reliance and trust. That's the kind of faith that overcomes. Ongoing reliance and trust upon who Jesus is and, consequently, who you are in him. 
All right, we got to touch this verse before we finish because this is the crazy one. This is the one, talking about Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. Now, right here, some later versions add the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that's not in any of the original documents. So if yours says that, just so you know, this, that's not in the original. The Spirit, the water, and the blood are the three that testify, and the three are in agreement. Now, as we talk about who these three are, remember, what is important is what we believe about Jesus, right? And these three testify to who he is, okay? There are different ideas, but the most that I read, this is what I wanted to show you guys. Water, talking about at his baptism. Remember, we're talking about testifying to who Jesus is. At Jesus' baptism, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Also, yes. Transfiguration. Very good. I love connections. Also at his baptism, the spirit came on Jesus in the form of a dove. And John uses water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So some people say the water. Of course, in this one, he's got them have separate things, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And water in the Old Testament was a symbol of cleansing, which John the Baptist used for the baptism of repentance. Right? But we cannot be totally cleansed by water alone. We needed something more. And that's where you come to the blood. Hebrews 9.22 says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus became the atoning sacrifice, the Passover lamb. The veil was torn. For me, that was God testifying that that barrier had been broken. And the way back to God was opened because of Jesus' atoning death. So that's referring to the water, the blood, and the spirit. The spirit is the one who testifies to the truth, who came at Pentecost, who helped Peter deliver the first sermon, and guides us into all truth. Of all the different people's versions of these, this little passage, I liked David Gusick's the best, so I put it in here for you. He who came by water and blood. Probably the best explanation is the oldest recorded Christian understanding of this passage. So this was the first time that we have recorded what another person taught about this passage. The earliest one was from Tertullian. And he says that most likely John means the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his crucifixion. When Jesus was baptized, he was not baptized in repentance for his own sin, because he had none, but because he wanted to completely identify with sinful humanity. When he came by water, it was his way of saying, I am one of you. One of the other reasons 
or, or ways people think water could be used here is the water of birth. And this actually brings the same idea right how, right here. The same idea as those who tie water to his birth or incarnation. It's saying the water part is, I am one of you. Then when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because he had to. Obviously, death could have no power over him, but he laid down his life to identify again with sinful humanity and to save us from our sin. When he came by blood, it was so that he could stand in our place as a guilty sinner and to take the punishment our sin deserved. And this one is what Pastor Tim teaches. I came to his class on 1 John. He said, some taught and still teach. This is still Guzik saying this, but it is the same thing Pastor Tim teaches. Some were teaching that Jesus received the Christ spirit at his baptism, and then the Christ spirit left before he died on the cross. Because for them, it was unthinkable that God could hang on a cross. So they said, nope, he, wasn't, he didn't have the Christ spirit anymore when he got to that point. But John here insists that Jesus did not come by, only by the water of baptism, but also by the blood of the cross. Irenaeus is the one who says that John wrote 1 John to refute Serinthus, who was one of the people who taught what we just read. He taught that Jesus only had the Christ spirit from baptism up to before the cross. And that's why John says Jesus didn't come by water only, because that's what he was saying. He only had the Christ spirit with the water, but also by blood. Water and blood. And then I just loved what Spurgeon wrote, because he put the three together in a way that makes sense from the Old Testament. He said, a priest was always ordained by sacrificial blood, cleansing water, and oil that spoke of the atoning Holy Spirit, the anointing, sorry, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had these three witnesses to his priestly ministry. Isn't that really pretty? The blood, the water, and the oil was what a priest would be, would be cleansed by in the Old Testament. Well, actually, it says ordained, but kind of... and. And so those are the same three that speak to agreeing and testifying to Jesus here. These three are in agreement. The spirit, the water, and the blood. In biblical times, a valid claim had to be based on the testimony of two to three witnesses. So that's why he would say these three are the witnesses. They're in agreement about who Jesus was. There's other ideas about the water, the blood, and the spirit. But I thought for a summary, that was the best thing to show you guys. Any questions? Okay. Finish up. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And I just put quickly five verses that give specifically the testimony God has given about his son. One, we just said, 
This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John 3.16, we probably know the best. God gave his only son to those who believe so that they could have eternal life. John 14.6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That's his testimony. The only way to the Father. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one other than Jesus. There is no other name by which we are saved. And 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there's only one mediator between God and mankind. And that is Jesus Christ. These are when people say there's lots of ways to God. The testimony that God has given us through his word, which you can see in many places is no. There is one name, one mediator, one way to the Father. And then I love the concise summary he gives here in 11 and, 13, 11 and 12. This is the testimony. Because he just said, we got those who believe the testimony that God has given about his son. Here it is. God has given us eternal life. Divine for me eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, speaking of the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He makes it very clear. And by the way, if you're keeping track of summary statements. These would be excellent summary statements to put on your page. Next week, I um, want to start, maybe I'll wait till we finish, but there's only a few verses left, which we did on purpose. We're just going to do the conclusion last, next week. And I want to go through the this is how statements, the summary statements, and kind of bring it all together to, okay, what are small chunks that we can remember and take with us from this class okay so if you have time to work on them this week try to put all those sentences that maybe he says almost the same thing in a different way and combine it into some summary statements you with me okay i've got some discussion questions for you so take the next 20 minutes in your small groups and enjoy them together